Welcome to a VJ Hemong podcast. Although this year's Ash 2020 meeting was held virtually, it still offered fantastic updates and insights in the field of CLL. Today, we are speaking to four leading experts in the CLL field who will discuss and debate the key data presented at Ash 2020, including fixed duration venetoclax-based regimens, LOXO305 and the potential role of doublets and triplets in CLL, and the use of CAR-T therapy for the treatment of CLL and Richter's transformation. So hello, I'm John Gribben and welcome to this VJ Heme where we're here to talk about the recent findings from the American Society of Hematology. I'm joined by my colleagues, Megan Thompson, Alessandra Tedeschi and Matt Davids. So welcome to uh, all of you. I, I think this was one of those years where um, nothing although we'll talk about it in detail, nothing hugely new, but a lot more consolidation, although certainly a, a few things that we'd like to kind of come in and talk about. But uh, let me first of all, just go around and ask you all, you know, what do you take away as your, as your highlights from the CLL sessions at Ash this year? So Megan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so I agree there was a lot of long-term follow-up, not a lot of uh, maybe new practice changing data yet, um, one of the exciting things to see was um, longer follow-up of the phase one to Bruin trial, looking at LOXO305, which is one of the highly selective non-covalent BTK uh, inhibitors. Um, and you know, it's, it was nice to see this data uh, presented. Um, there were 94 CLL patients, and um, just about over 80% of them had had a prior uh, BTK. Um, you know, now a standard of care for us. And um, uh, a lot of those patients had CIS481 or known resistance mutation, but a lot of them were clinically resistant and also did not. Um, and overall, the drug was found to be very safe. Um, and then while it's a phase one, um, early phase two results in terms of efficacy, the efficacy looked good in both the BTK wild type and mutated patients. So I think that this is an exciting drug and uh, certainly um, looking forward to longer term follow-up. Yeah, I agree with you. I was actually particularly struck by the safety profile. It really looked like uh, with larger numbers of patients. I mean, we've seen this in some of these early phases before. It looks very safe at the beginning, but it really had a very impressive safety profile when you could considering that many of these patients had already had either problems or became in, you know, intolerant to other BTK inhibitors. Alessandra, what about you? What do you take away as your highlights from virtual San Diego this year? I totally agree, I would say, with uh, the LOXO data are very uh, impressive. Now we have uh, another BTK uh, inhibitor, which is uh, important for uh, our clinical uh, practice. And of course, it's impressive uh, uh, the data on uh, um, BTK protected patients, even on those uh, relapsing after BTK. Uh, I would also outline uh, the data on uh, the Murano study. At least uh, we have the uh, five year uh, follow up with the median progression free survival of the Murano study for venetoclax rituximab reached uh, 53 months. And uh, uh, a lot of data on the deepness of uh, responses, I think, in this year, even in the CLL14 study, 
uh, in the Murano study, in the clarity study, a lot of uh, logarithms uh, we saw on the dynamic of uh, responses and how it's important to reach an uh, MRD response and the, 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 the dynamics of the response is uh, also important. But I would also outline the follow-up of the Murano study because we never look at the uh, progression-free survival too of the studies, we, also, uh, we always focus on the progression for survival one, while there was a poster on the progression for survival two after Murano, and uh, uh, Veneto Casiduximab did not compromise the uh, progression for survival uh, two, and this is uh, important, it was not reached for patients treated with Veneto Casiduximab, and they were retreated uh, safely again with the Veneto Casiduximab and with uh, the VTK inhibitor. So uh, we are starting also to see sequencing of uh, our treatments and not only the photograph of the first uh, treatment we have. And I think this is very important for our clinical practice. Hold that thought, because I'm going to come back to that with all of you. And, and Matt, what was what was a highlight for you? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with my colleagues on the abstracts they mentioned. I can add uh, maybe to say something a little different that I, I really did enjoy your presentation, John, on the Unity CLL study. Uh, actually, this is an important phase three trial. It's one that we've been waiting for the results on for some years now. Uh, as a reminder, this is the newer PI3 kinase delta inhibitor umbralisib given with a CD20 antibody, ublituximab, the so-called U2 regimen, compared to obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. This is a large phase three data set, over 600 patients initially enrolled in the study. And it was great to see the, the efficacy and safety data, you know, the efficacy data in the frontline setting, median progression-free survival of around 38 months or so, uh, a little less in the relapsed refractory setting. I think you're seeing, as, as we saw in the early phase studies of Umbralisa, that the safety profile of this drug does seem to be a bit better than the approved PIP kinase delta inhibitors, particularly in the frontline setting where those toxicities have really been prohibitive for those other agents. So I think this could be a feasible regimen now for frontline use, the U2 regimen. Uh, it's a, potentially a nice alternative to BTK inhibitors or venetoclax-based therapy for patients where perhaps those are contraindicated. I don't see it as displacing those two therapies um, for patients who are candidates, though. Um, and then the, the other thing I, I did want to mention, which also struck me at the meeting, was the CLL14 update. We saw some very elegant MRD data, which we expected to see from the abstract, but the, the German group nicely snuck in some updated PFS data, which I think yeah. is really important. We saw that four-year PFS for venetoclax obinutuzumab, 74%. So that means you know, since the last data cut when it was 82%, only 8% of patients have progressed in that year from three to four off of all therapy which to me looks very reassuring that you can get durable benefit from venetoclax obinutizumab, particularly for lower-risk patients who don't have TP53 aberrant disease. Yeah, as you say, it was a nice little bonus from CLL14 because, of course, it wasn't in the abstract, and I don't think many of us were expecting to see it. And it kept it almost till the very end of the presentation and just kind of threw it in there. I'm going to come back and talk about the stuff about the dynamics of the MRD. And Alessandra, you talked about it too, because I think that was a recurring theme we saw in lots of the talks uh, this year, uh, looking not just at MRD positive or negative with the dynamics. And I want to hold that thought and come back to it. But yeah, I completely agree with you, Matt. The, uh, the CLL14 data, I had been a little concerned that the PFS was dropping off, but it really, you know, another year later hadn't dropped off that much. And I was beginning to worry that one year fixed duration venetoclax uh, wasn't going to be enough. Now, um, Megan, um, coming back to you, Alessandra already touched on the issue of, of you know, PFS2 and thinking about retreatment after venetoclax. Of course, your own presentation was on, on kind of looking at exactly this. And, and I'd like to just talk and get the three of you involved in thinking about, you know, 
you know, the whole question of sequencing, but particularly if we're talking about using venetoclax-based fixed-duration therapies, what's your thoughts about the data we see emerging about when you can, when and whom you would retreat with venetoclax regimen? Do you re-add in an, an anti-CD20 antibody or not? And, and, you know, what are we thinking about? And I completely agree with you, Alessandra, more presentations starting to think about PFS2, which is now becoming more and more important in terms of, of, of thinking what we're saying. So, so Megan, you, you presented uh, the data. So you've obviously, in terms of your own presentation, also been thinking about, you know, how the other data we saw in that kind of field. So what are your thoughts in that area? Yeah, so um, I think for the first time we saw still a very small number of patients in the two presentations, which were different patient populations. So um, I uh, was part of a project that was, uh, you know, collaborative effort for patients treated um, in the U.S. And then we used the core CLL database and um, we identified patients who had been treated um, either on clinical trial or off a of clinical trial with a venetoclax-based regimen, both treatment naive and relapse refractory, although it's a heavily uh, pretreated population. And um, I had valuable responses on 18 patients who were retreated with a venetoclax-based regimen. Now, most of those patients were treated with monotherapy um, regimens, did not have anti-CD20 added, although some of them did. Um, and um, we had um, short follow-up, but an overall response rate of 72% on 18 evaluable patients. And we were also able to take a look at some basic safety data and also just physician practice. Um, you know, how are you reintroducing venetoclax in the second line? Did people do the standard um, dose escalation? Um, and most people did with the exception of, of two of those patients. So we found an overall high response rate. Um, I think the numbers are still very small. Um, I think also, um, you know, with longer follow-up, it would be interesting to see if responses deepen. The patients that we followed who had a complete response had a longer duration than those with stable disease. Um, so um, looking forward to collecting a little bit more data there. Um, but as Dr. Tedeschi mentioned, I think it was really important also to see the Murano follow-up, um, a little bit of a different patient population. Now, uh, you know, our kind of real world look included 60% of those patients have been treated with a prior BTK. So a little bit um, different population than, than Murano. Um, they also had 18 patients, um, same number with evaluable responses, and actually uh, found the same um, overall response rate, 72% with bed retreatment. So you have two kind of different, different um, takes on it with similar responses. Um, their follow-up was a little bit longer, I believe, um, but still, still short. So it'll be interesting to see over time um, kind of how durable those responses are. And then they also presented data for um, BTK after um, the Murano regimen, which was also very promising. So um, it's nice to see um, some more data, even though there's you know, a lot of retrospective work and, and real world work about BTK after venetoclax now, it's nice to have kind of confirmation of that um, with these patients who have been followed really closely. Now, Sandra, you already talked about the Murano retreatment thing. What, of course, we're now seeing is we're seeing patients with on Murano being retreated who had 
the first lot were the people who relapsed quite early. And now we're seeing people who've had longer durations of responses. And of course, those are the people that I think naturally we're all going to be more comfortable going back to venetoclax retreatment for. And it did seem as if that, yes, the PFS2 was longer in those whose PFS1 was also longer. And I guess it's intuitive to think that would be the case. But was that your interpretation of what you were seeing overall at the meeting also? Yes, yes, I would say yes. Uh, of course, we, we also see for the first time, I would say, in the Murano study, uh, what impacts on uh, MRD uh, doubling time, because um, as for now, we didn't have many predictive um, factors of patients treated with venetoclax reduction. What we saw again, that patients with 70p deletion, complex karyotype, and annotated have a MRD doubling time um, uh, in respect uh, compared to, to the others. So uh, again, we are seeing that there is a high risk uh, population, of course, uh, but seems that, uh, uh, of course, this is a patients relapsing this moment and going uh, uh, to receive a second line treatment. So uh, these patients do also well with the, the, the second salvage, I would say. So uh, this, is, uh, this is important. Actually, Matt, I suppose this is a good time as any to talk about, I, for me, as I said already, one of the, the themes of this meeting was looking at the dynamics of MRD. And I thought we saw a number of very eloquent approaches, lots of different modeling going on. And for the people who are probably not CLL aficionados, a lot of it quite arcane and quite complex in terms of how it's all being done. But a general theme coming out of several of the studies was that people who've received the novel agents the dynamic of relapsing looks a little different than the arm who received the chemotherapy. Now, I know you and I have talked in the past about how potentially chemotherapy might be able to induce some kind of genetic changes in, in the cells as, as one potential mechanism. But what, what are you making out of how, this, how, how it might be that getting treated with venetoclax before would change the, the doubling time of the CLL at relapse? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question, and and the hypothesis that you mentioned is for you. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of going to be my answer. You know, I, I think there probably is some genotonic toxic damage from chemoimmunotherapy that enriches for faster growth rate based on a variety of different mutations that are induced. And you know, we don't we don't know too much about resistance to venetoclax in the frontline setting yet. Uh, CLL14 has not had too many progressors. Certainly, those progressors seem to have TP53 dysfunction more likely. Uh, but the, the German group did a very nice and, and, as you said, elegant analysis of growth rates in the Van Oben treated patients in CLL14, and certainly patients who have high risk markers had faster growth rates. But I, I did also, as, as you said, I was struck by that faster growth rate in the chloramicilobinutuzumab arm, even sort of matching for, for different risk factors and, and the genomics of the disease. Uh, so it does seem like there's something about the chemoimmunotherapy that's leading to, to faster regrowth. And this is even looking at a 10 to the minus 6 depth. So it's not just that you're getting deeper remissions with, with venetoclax, it's all things being equal. You can get to 10 to the minus six, uh, even in some cases with chlorambicillobinutuzumab, but those clones are going to grow back faster. Uh, and I think that's a puzzle that we need to continue to unravel. Uh, I thought perhaps, uh, on, particularly with the Murano data, uh, no offense to Arnon, but I think, I think perhaps he was over-interpreting the data to see a plateau on that curve that I wasn't seeing yet. <laughs> but uh, I yeah, see what in terms of flattening it out, but I thought plateau was perhaps an overstatement. Um, what do you think all this means, Megan, in terms of uh, people in practice about the, how confident they're going to be to be 
retreating with venetoclax rather than immediately changing over to a BTK inhibitor or potentially moving on to a third line therapy if it becomes available with something like umbrilicit? Yeah, so I think um, there's not enough data yet to say that retreatment after fixed duration is, is really a, a standard approach, especially uh, when there are a lot of um, other great options uh, for patients. Um, I think we, we need more data, particularly in the frontline setting. Um, there's almost no data uh, now. So I think if someone's being treated up front with fixed duration, um, you know, patients that maybe this approach would be considered in our, you know, later um, stage patients who have fewer options, maybe were treated with venetoclax, rituximab, fixed duration, and the relapse setting years ago have been through some other therapies and had, you know, a good initial response to venetoclax and then a duration, uh, you know, of, of, of treatment-free for a while. Uh, maybe those are the patients, but there are a lot of other good options right now. So I, I think before this is a, a standard approach, we, we definitely need, uh, need more data. Um, and then, of course, there's those patients who um, really would not, you know, be in this very small group um, in, in patients who have had resistance or, you know, had, you know, just progressed after six months. Um, so I think, I think a lot more uh, needs to be done, but I think it is good. And I think, you know, takeaway from this meeting is a lot of the frontline treatment options were fixed duration combination therapies that do include both BTK and BCL2. And so when you have patients who, you know, this is still on, in the clinical trial setting, but you know, what will you do once you do a fixed duration anti-CD20 BCL2 BTK um, or even an MRD-driven approach, uh, which again is, is only in the clinical trial setting, you know, if these do become standard approaches at some point, I do think that this will be a very relevant question for people. Can they be rechallenged with a BCL2 inhibitor? So I think it's still forthcoming, and I think it'll, it'll be very important, especially um, once we see longer-term follow-up um, from these combinations in the frontline setting um, to see to see if patients can be retreated, but I don't I don't think it's uh, by any means ready for for standard of care yet. Um, so of course, all three of you mentioned um, the LOXO trial. Could, do any of you potentially see that um, non-covalent BTK inhibitors could displace um, covalent binders as uh, as a class of drug going forward? A anyone think so? I would say it's certainly within the realm of possibility. There's certainly a, a lot of hoops that would need to be jumped through first. Uh, I think what you alluded to before about the safety profile differences may be influential there, John. So I think if, if Loxo can show that it's highly effective both in BTK wild type and mutant patients, but with at least appearingly, appearing to be a better safety profile, we heard from uh, Dr. Mado that they are planning a head-to-head -head study versus abrutinib, and if they can show in that study that there's better safety profile and at least comparable efficacy, then, then it could have a, an important role. Sure. Now, Megan already alluded to there the fact that we saw lots of data on the doublets and triplets. So, uh, Matt, you presented uh, some your own studies, triplet data. Well, what's your take overall on, well, I guess I'll, coming back to all of you, you know, I, I guess the answers to doublets versus triplets is going to take the clinical trials, but how are you interpreting what you're seeing in terms of doublets versus triplet uh, and in terms of the therapy that we saw this year and, you know, more updates on, on the studies that are ongoing? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's early days still. Uh, we presented an update on our acalabrutinib venetoclax open in 2000, AVO data. We saw data from the Bovin study with uh, xanabrutinib venetoclax open, as well as updates on abrutinib venetoclax open. So the, the triplet data are, are there, but they're all single arm studies. We don't have any randomizations yet. Uh, we have doublet-based regimens that we've seen that look nice as well. We saw an update on the Captivate study for the first time seeing the MRD cohort data for abrutinib venetoclax up front. Also looks very good, but as, as you're alluding to, I think questions, questions are going to be around, do we need the CD20 antibody? There are studies that will, will help us to answer that that are ongoing uh, in the UK, and uh, also the uh, 311 study of acalbrutinib venobin versus AV versus chemo, for example. Uh, so that's one question, but I think as Megan was saying, you know, do we really need to use both of our best mechanisms up front, BTK and BCL2? Uh, so we really need studies comparing that approach to, for example, venobin, and then sequential use of a BTK inhibitor later in the course. Uh, and there are, again, studies like that planned. Uh, so that'll be important, but we're not going to know the results for many years. I know. Now, now, of course, Alessandro, this is where your concept of PFS2 becomes even more important. If we're using all of our best class of drugs up front, we have to know, and almost invariably, we're going to be doing that fixed duration, or there'll be no point in doing it that way. Almost invariably, we're going to have to know what happens to the patients after progression. But I'm certainly not going to be around in my career to be seeing the results of many of those studies. You guys are all young enough to be uh, potentially seeing it. But these are going to be very long studies to read out. And as always, potentially by the time we get the readouts on these studies, the whole field will have moved on to something else again. So these are going to be very long studies to do, aren't they? I believe I believe, uh, yes. First of all, how Matthew said, we, we need randomized trials to understand if it's better to add or not the monoclonal antibody, because we know that uh, more is better in hematology, but we know that uh, it's not always through this thing. But I think that all these phase two studies that in which the um, treatment is arbitrary chosen. I mean, uh, CRL14, uh, it's chosen on uh, an arbitrary scheme at, at the end. It's 12 months, but uh, there is not a rational for the 12 months. So all these phase two studies maybe, and those studies with the logarithms uh, and the very, very different from uh, one study from the other, will help us to understand maybe which is the better dose and which is a real schedule we, we would administer to our patients, 12 months, 24 months, it's better MRD-driven or not. Uh, something we have learned from the Captivate study at the end, that because after the 12 months, if you are MRD-negative, seems for this is free survival at one year, you don't need any more ibrutinib. Uh, but all these phase two study will learn us something about the schedule and how long will be the, uh, the treatment of these patients. Otherwise, with the randomized trials, as you said, we need years and years and years to, <laughs> to have a, a definitive answer to everything. It's why I'm hoping that the, the really the dynamic MRD studies are really going to give us a clue about what's happening in many of these patients and, and give us some anticipation. But we're clearly going to need a lot more data than we saw just this year in terms of correlating MRD dynamics with, with, you know, with real live uh, data. I guess, um, you know, the more you think about using up all your drugs, the more you have to think what else is out there. We 
obviously saw uh, Bill Weirda and Tanya Siddiqui update us again on the Transcend um, the CAR T cell data. So, so Megan, back to you again. What, what's your take on where we are with CAR T, and is it going to be are the data looking good enough for us to be able to think that those patients who have failed our other best therapies are going to be salvaged with these approaches? Yeah, so I think, you know, even tying into using, um, you know, a triplet combination up front, that patient selection is a really important part of this conversation, too. Um, you know, looking at, you know, what studies are and aren't enriched for these high-risk patients, DEL17P, TP53 mutation, um, and then some of the other emerging um, uh, genetic characteristics we're seeing. Um, I think that, you know, certainly both the 24-month follow-up from the uh, lysocell monotherapy as well as the BTK in combination with lysocell data um, are really promising. I think the question becomes which patients um, are appropriate for um, this, you know, time-intensive, costly, um, and um, really aggressive approach. Um, when other treatment options exist. It was nice to see that there were a lot of P53 aberrant patients um, in the uh, Transcend 24-month follow-up, um, some of whom had durable responses. So I think um, it's, it's good to have this approach, um, you know, in, in the back pocket, you know, again, certainly um, in, the, in the trial setting, but especially for, for those patients who uh, with genetic characteristics that the novel combinations haven't yet uh, quite overcome. Mm. I guess as well, Alessandra, th th there's a changing dynamic of who are the patients who are going to be coming to this type of therapy as more and more of these new and novel combinations of therapy come along. And I'm kind of aware of thinking already what happened in in, in the lymphoma field where you got better upfront therapy, you got worse relapses. <laughs> so, you know, it may be harder to salvage these people back in the future. So you already alluded to the issues, Alessandra, that in Europe, of course, the Cartesial field has a little bit lagged behind where things are in the US. And certainly in Europe, we haven't had as much exposure to the lysocell clinical trials that have largely occurred in the US. But um, certainly, you know, in, in, uh, in Europe now, CAR-T and, and lymphoma fully established as being an, a treatment approach. And one would imagine that if, when lysocell becomes approved in CLL, the same kind of approach will open. So there will be doors open for some of our patients to be treated in this way. I, I guess starting in that very end stage population, it's a question of how do you decide in which group of patients you're able to try to move it forward? Any thoughts on, any thoughts on that? Uh, not many thoughts on that in this moment. Of course, uh, we are doing a lot of CAR T in uh, high-grade lymphomas and acute lymphoblastic leukemias, but not in uh, CRL, as you said. Uh, from the studies I have seen, uh, the population was a very high-risk population in progressive disease after BTK inhibitors, so the netoclax, and of course there were also a lot of Richter transformation in the uh, Tanya Sdiki uh, study. So uh, maybe uh, for sure we have to select a high-risk population, but treat with this kind of cellular therapy because they have been submitted to so many treatments because otherwise we won't have uh, um, nice results at the end. So the selection should be uh, made before uh, we perform a lot of uh, other drugs, I believe. 
Emma, I know you've got some Richter studies ongoing. I, I see a huge amount on Richter's at this meeting. Anything kind of catch your eye in the Richter's field? Any hope there for a Richter's patients other than the, just the CAR T-cell data we already saw? Yeah, not, not too much new at this meeting beyond that, at least in the clinic. You know, I think there's been some interesting insights on the more basic side, um, trying to look for different pathways that may be involved, uh, trying to dissect the notch pathway a little further and how that might influence Richter's pathobiology. Uh, you know, I think on the clinical side, we had presented some data earlier in the year at ASCO on the venetoclax r epoch combination, sort of a chemosensitization strategy, which I think looks promising. And then, you know, I think some of, all, some of the checkpoint approaches, doesn't seem like checkpoint blockade on its own is going to be enough in Richter's, but perhaps finding the right combination partners. The MD Anderson has, has presented some data on BTK inhibitors with pembrolizumab or nivolumab, for example, in the past. Uh, so I think those are, are promising angles. But as you well know, John, uh, CLL is a challenging disease for immunotherapy. Uh, I think the same issue exists with the CAR T cells in CLL. You're relying on autologous T cells that are dysfunctional from CLL patients, uh, and you still have often a burden of disease there that's contributing to the immune suppression. Uh, so I think looking at novel combination partners to enhance the activity of cellular-based therapies is really going to be crucial in CLL. Yeah, and of course we saw that from Tanya and Bill presenting the data looking at using ibrutinib, as a, not in terms of its CLL act activity, although I'm sure that's a part of it, but some of those patients are already abrutinib resistant. So really right. using it for its immunomodulatory effects. And I think we probably need to do a lot more to really understand how the CLL impacts on it. Well, believe it or not, guys, although we said there was not much new thing, we've managed to use up the entire time already. So all that remains for me is to say that you can hear that although we all started off by seeing not a huge amount of brand new phase three data in CLL, plenty of data for the th four of us to be quite enthused and to talk about and a lot of incremental data that's going to be very useful and a lot of modeling that I think is going to be extremely useful for planning for clinical trials in the future. So with that, I'd like to thank you all for your attention. Thanks to Megan, Alessandra, and Matt for their incredibly insightful uh, um, comments on, on what we saw at this meeting. And thanks to Vijayim for giving us this platform to share our views with you. So see you all at the next meeting and look forward to it then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, bye. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed with us. Visit VJHemonk.com for more updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of the latest updates in CLL. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.